Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace America. I hope you're having a great day after Thanksgiving that you are going to or from wherever you wish to celebrate. You may be shopping or you may just be simply listening at home because someone called you up and said they're talking about Lincoln and Larry Arn is talking about Lincoln and you don't want to miss it. Uh, Dr. Arn, of course, president of Hillsdale College. All of his uh, work and the work of the college is at hillsdale.edu, many free courses. All of the conversations he and I and his colleagues at Hillsdale have had over the past two years in the Hillsdale Dialogues on the Hugh Hewitt Show are recorded at Hugh for Hillsdale. And we hit upon a plan that on Thanksgiving we would talk about the documents leading up to the Declaration of Independence and that declaration, that we would talk about the Constitution and its ratification. We would talk about the Bill of Rights. And the day after Thanksgiving, to uh, give us both days off, but also to uh, make sure they are useful data to you, we would talk about Abraham Lincoln. And when we left off, Lincoln had just told the story to a journalist in 1858 that he'd memorized all the propositions of Euclid. How many of those are there, Dr. Arndt? I think there, I don't know. He's in six books. Uh, you can tell I haven't memorized them. But Lincoln, by the way, that's a point. Sometimes Lincoln sounds like Shakespeare in the Bible, poetic and often tragic. But very often, Lincoln also sounds simply logical. He has a wonderful compactness about the way he reasons. Here's an example from, it's like a syllogism. Uh, it, there's a fragment on slavery that we haven't, when I, when I, uh, let's mention it. It, it, just, it. He wrote it down. We don't know why he wrote it down. But it says, uh, you say that I, should be the, that I can be your slave because my skin is darker than yours. Take care. The next man you meet whose skin is lighter than yours is your master. You say I should be your slave because you are more intelligent than I. Take care. The next man you meet, more intelligent than you, is your master. That sounds like Euclid, you know. It does. <laughs> it, you know, uh, and you know. And it's not possible to refute. I, I, it's just devastating, right? And he worked. His uh, in two of the speeches we're going to read, he gives a history of slavery in the Union, and they're crystal clear, and yet they're narratives, and they're logical in their way. And so his gift, you know, uh, you have to understand, this is a man who worked extremely hard to become what he was. And he thought, he had a mind for it, and he applied his mind. He thought deeply. And, uh, and so there's a, uh, these things that he knows, uh, they didn't, you know, they, they might not ever come to, to normal people, and the, and but this, they didn't come easy to him. This gift for compactness, which I want to dwell on for a moment. Montaigne tells us you, we misremember things, but I remember you telling me this in Sacramento. So I, I just, I, as clear as I can, it would have been 1990, telling me that Lincoln argued you don't hang a horse. Am I correct about this? Uh, well, in one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, it, the, the, the thing goes roughly this way. Uh, Douglas says, I can take my horse and my hog and my buckboard to, to Nebraska and keep my property in them. Why not my slave? It's property, too. And Lincoln says, yeah, true, if there's no difference between the hog and the buckboard on the one hand and the slave on the other. But, he says, everybody actually knows the difference. There isn't a law anywhere making it illegal to teach a pig to read, and there isn't a law to hang a pig for murder. That's it. And, and that is complete right it's yeah. it, it's it, it's not even an argument it's a complete illustration that defeats douglas did douglas sputter 
Oh, yeah. Well, often. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Douglas is very artful, you know, and he was beaten by Lincoln, finally. And by the way, at the end of his life, pledged his loyalty to Lincoln. Um, but, you know, it, it, but one of the reasons that's beautiful, in my opinion, is that one of the great classic teachings is that we, are, we all do love the good. And we wish, and that that love of the good is found founded in our recognition of what kinds of things things are, and justice means we treat them according to their kinds. And so, like the the Nazis, you know, it's very interesting that they would rant dang near anything, but you never got Hitler, and you never got anybody else writing out in a document about what they were doing at Auschwitz, and at the Vonsi conference, and what. 1941 or two, they, 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 they took, like these Nazis do, they took these detailed notes of this conference where they decided on the final solution. And the notes are interesting because a lot of people were reluctant and force was implied against them. But the second thing is they gave everybody a copy and they made them all, and they kept a register of who got copies. And then they put them under an order to destroy all the cop- copies in one month. Now, why destroy? See, and somebody didn't, and that's why we know about it. But th- in other words, there was another thing going on with those Nazis. And just like Lincoln said, they knew what they were, and they knew you can't slaughter them like cattle. And it, it, it ties back as well, that illustration of the hog and of the, the, the notes, there are certain things that are self-evident, and that claim is made first in the Declaration of Independence. And Lincoln declared, maybe it wasn't made first then, it was made first most publicly in the Declaration that there are things that are self-evident. And in the electric cord speech, it's about the Declaration, and he had a great regard for that, which was self-evident. Yeah, and see, there's a passage in here that's, I think it might be my favorite passage in all of Lincoln, and I'll read it. But it's, it's one of the most compact and lovely explanations of the remarkable nature of the United States. You know, the thing for which we're giving Thanksgiving at this season. In the middle of one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and this, by the way, is the nearest thing Lincoln ever gave to a formal Fourth of July speech. It was on July the 10th, 1858. And he, in the middle of the speech, he suddenly stops and he goes into a standard Fourth of July speech, which, you know, the great ones are all alike. They all talk about how big and prosperous and wonderful everything's become and how it all traces back to the Declaration of Independence. So here I'll read. We are now a mighty nation. We are 30 or about 30 millions of people, and we own and inhabit one-fifteenth part of the dry land of the whole earth. We run our memory back, and isn't that a nice phrase, by the way? We run our memory back over the pages of history for about 82 years. And we discover that we were then a very small people in point of numbers, vastly inferior to what we are now, with a vastly less extent of country, vastly less of everything we deem desirable among men. We look upon the change as exceedingly advantageous to us and to our posterity, and we fix upon something that happened a way back, as in some other way or another being connected with this rise of prosperity. We find a race of men living in that day whom we claim as our fathers and grandfathers. I love this phrase. They were iron men. They fought for the principle that they were contending for. And we understood by what they did then that it, that, that it, uh, that, that has followed then our degree of prosperity. 
We hold this annual celebration to remind ourselves of all the good done in the process of time and how it was done and who did it. And we go from these meetings in better humor with ourselves. But after we have done all this, we have not yet reached the whole. There is something else connected with it. We have beside these men, descended by blood from our ancestors, among us perhaps half our people who are not descendants of all those men in the founding. They are men who have come from Europe, German, Irish, French, Scandinavian. Men have come from Europe themselves or whose ancestors have come hither, finding themselves are equal in all things. If they look back through this history to trace their connection with those days by blood, they find that they have none. They can't carry themselves back into that day. Sorry, I lost my place. Back into that glorious epic and make themselves feel that they are part of us. But when they look through that old Declaration of Independence, they find that those old men said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And then they feel that that moral sentiment taught in that day evidences their relation to those men that is the father of all moral principle in them, and that they have a right to claim it as though they were blood of the blood. Down to hear the Bible? Yep. They were blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote that declaration. That is the electric cord in that declaration that links the hearts of patriotic and liberty-loving men together and will link those hearts as long as the love of freedom exists in the minds of men throughout the world. Now, that was extemporaneous? Well, as far as we know, uh, we do know that there he is arguing with Douglas on, and these debates would go on for three and four hours. And people would, you know, thousands of people would come, drive half a day to hear them, sit out in the sun, take a break for dinner and come back. And they're arguing fine points, and they're talking, each one of them, 45 and 60 minutes at a time, in rebuttal and sur-rebuttal. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, he just stopped and did that. And, and, And in so doing... Uh, not only is it beautiful, it's a master political stroke because everyone in the hearing is included, whether they are blood of blood or merely connected by the electric cord. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry R. And our subject on this day after Thanksgiving is Lincoln. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America, on the day after Thanksgiving. I hope you had a wonderful, glorious Thanksgiving day that you've begun your holiday fe- celebrations in a festive spirit. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and I are here to help you enjoy this Friday after Thanksgiving by talking about uh, the greatest American, Lincoln, and uh, and as Dr. Arn said earlier, with some humility and about towards George Washington. Uh, we nevertheless say uh, Lincoln deserves his day, and he gets it today. Uh, Dr. Arn, of course, president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. For all of the amazing offerings out there, it's also application season. If you have a young man or woman in your house who is drawn to such conversations as this, have them go look and apply. And if you like these conversations, all of them that we've recorded over the past two years are available at HughForHillsdale.com. I remarked, Dr. Ron, on going to break that that beautiful electric cord speech delivered in the middle of his Lincoln-Douglas debate is not only beautifully crafted and philosophically sound and rigorous, it's also an amazing bit of political work because by referring to the Iron Men, uh, he is puffing up pride. And he's connecting everyone to them, and he's drawing them all in, and he's saying, that's all of you here. There's no one I'm not talking to. It's, it's beautifully crafted to get every vote. That's, you see, there's, uh, like, uh, think how unusual that is, right? Like, uh, uh, let me talk about my family. So my wife comes from a family that came to England in the Norman Conquest and 
settled up in the north of England, and they were there to this day. So that's really great and old, and I admire them, and my wife's father and mother were tremendous people, and I miss them and, and respect them greatly. Settled away, old connections. They're not aristocracy, but they were important people in their world. So now it's a chance that my own daughters are eligible for the daughters of the American Revolution, and the family historian, a nice lady named Judith Knight, says to me, "It also it means, however, that we came over here as Jews." <laughs> so I don't, I don't really know the truth of that, and I confess. I don't know that I regard it as all that important. Agreed. And, yeah. the reason, and the reason is, you know, my daughters are great, and my connection and theirs to the people who have founded our country are in the principle that we are possessed of our equality, that we may not be governed except for our, from our consent. And that applies to every human being, but there's something special about the United States because it's the first and, and, and really the only country ever to make that the meaning of the country. And that is Lincoln's message. I, I, I want to add that I, I've said the same thing again and again to my children. The fetching Mrs. Hewitt is a colonial dame, but she is also uh, a, a Jewish refugee from Europe, and I'm an Irish coal digger, and none of it matters. Mm. You see, that's a, it's, it's just a remarkable country. And Lincoln intuits that. What year is this, 1858? Yeah. Is that when he, he's making this claim? And who knows who's in the audience in Illinois, right? Probably brawlers and tavern keepers and lawyers and clergy. And he's talking. Are women, by the way, in abundance at this? They don't have the, the vote, obviously. But are they are they in abundance at political speeches? Yeah. We, and by the way, worth mentioning, Lincoln was always in favor of women's suffrage. And it came not long after the Civil War, or a while after. But uh, they came and they flocked to the place. And uh, there were huge crowds. And see, it's an interesting point, you know, because everybody understands now we're in a crisis. The Union might split up. There could even be a war. And... And like in 1840 and 1812, well, there's a war on in 1812, but in normal times, and we have had some, although not as many as one would think, you wouldn't get crowds like that. It's like the Federalist Papers being read out in huge throngs. They put them up in the newspaper office, and throngs would gather and hear them read aloud. But they weren't doing that 20 years before. And that's because people had a sense that something important was happening. And Lincoln, his interpretation of what's happening, and we're going to talk about the way this slavery crisis, like many things that are going on today, cut both ways and involve everyone in contradictions. And Lincoln saw his way through because he could start and articulate the fundamental meaning of the Union, which is, by the way, also the fundamental meaning of the human being, so clearly and poetically. And he could also explain to people the connection between the Declaration, the Constitution, and their present situation. That brings us to the fragment on the Constitution and the Union, which uh, we've referenced in the past as being a famous Lincoln fragment, but I didn't realize where it came from. Yeah, he, uh, he just uh, wrote this down one time. And uh, he did. He did that. You know, it's like uh, uh, if you know anything about Rembrandt. I know something about him, and I think he's the greatest. And he's, there's lots of sketches in, that show up later in more developed form as parts of of uh, 
Rembrandt's great productions. And there's things like that in Lincoln's work, too. Little bits of things that he reasoned through, and then the next thing you know, he turns them into movement in some, the middle of some great speech. And this fragment is about how the Constitution and the Declaration are related. And, you know, it's very common among historians to say that the Declaration is a radical document, and the Constitution is a conservative document. And a stepping back from the radicalism of the Declaration because it wasn't working out, and anyway, they had more vested interest now. That's a very standard account. And Lincoln gives the explicit lie to that. And by the way, that's an account that is put forward by John Calhoun and other leaders of pro-slavery thinking, because what they say is the Declaration of Independence never was all that important in the making of the founding, and it didn't have anything to do. And they can't let it be, right? They can't let it be important to the founding. That's right, because, and see, uh, there's two stages in that argument as they unfold. Calhoun says it's unimportant, and then, and then later, and, and, and uh, some, some followers of Calhoun said it's a self-evident lie, and then later Lincoln accuses, and I think rightly accuses, Roger Tawney, who is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who wrote the Dred Scott decision in 1858, and Stephen Douglas, of saying it is important, it just was never meant to include the black people. Huh. And, uh, and, and Lincoln takes that on. And what's interesting about Lincoln's argument in this fragment is that he admits with Calhoun that the, that the universal principle didn't have to be there to affect the separation. And that, he says, makes it more important. Because that means that they put it in there for the future. For the future. So what does this fragment say in the minute we have left? Uh, he says, all this, and by this he apparently means our country, is not a result of accident. It has a philosophical cause. And then he says, uh, uh, there is something back of all these developments. Something is the principle of liberty to all, the principle that clears the path for all, gives hope to all, and by consequence, enterprise and industry to all. And this principle is, like he says, an apple of gold. And the, and the Constitution becomes then a picture, or in modern terms, a frame of silver around this apple of gold. And the two are necessary to achieve the fullest effect. And thus refutes Douglas and Calhoun and everybody else. We'll be right back with Dr. Larry on Lincoln Day, the day after Thanksgiving. Stay here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, American Chew Hewitt with Larry Arn on Lincoln Day. And now I have to get a little chronological with Dr. Arn in the audience because we are aware of Steelers fans being listeners. And we do wish to go back and explain there were two nations, one free and one slave. And there was a constant tension about how to expand the country and maintain the balance and not split. And and the great clay would compromise, and there were compromise after compromise. And finally, there came a Kansas-Nebraska Act in October of 1854. What did it do, Larry, and what did Lincoln say about it? Well, uh, if, with your permission, Hugh, I'm going to go back one step earlier. Please. So the American Union grew after the successful revolution, and it grew uh, the first 
brand new land that it grew into was called the Northwest Territory, where Ohio and Michigan both are. And, Capital you know, of which is Warren, Ohio. Yes, proceed. That's right. And, um, um, and this Northwest Territory, uh, like, uh, like all of the territory uh, further southeast of the Mississippi River, was claimed by states which states gave it over to the Union. And the biggest batch was uh, Virginia. And on the motion of Thomas Jefferson, a slaveholder, and on the insistence of Virginia, a slave state, they would give it free of charge to the entire Union on condition that slavery never be admitted in it. And that was made fact in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. So the first great accretion of new territory on its way to being states in the Union was was accepted without controversy as forbidding any growth of slavery in it. And this was in a time when slavery was being abolished in most, but not fatally all, fatefully all of the Union. And so it's a snapshot, right, that's, that in 1787 there was a consensus that the new land would not come in with slavery. Now, go back, uh, go, go forward exactly 33 years to 1820, and Missouri is to come into the Union, and there's an enormous agitation because if it's let in slave or it's let in free by itself, it will upset the balance between slavery and freedom in the Senate of the United States. And so in 18, 1787, that was not a controversy. And in 1820, it gives rise to the great controversy, to compromise, the Compromise of 1820, the Missouri Compromise, fashioned by uh, Henry Clay. And what it basically says is Maine will come in with Missouri, and then we'll draw a line. And south of the line, there, there might be another slave state or two, but north of the line, and then farther on, Lincoln later argues, no more slave states. Right. And so that puts the slavery, and that means that there was a slavery agitation in the second decade of the 20th century, which was a new arrival in America. And then, uh, and then it put it to bed for a long time. And it comes up again in the 1840s because of the Mexican War and because of the accretion of a lot more land up in the north, too. Uh, and so it, it starts up again, and in 1850 there was another compromise that, that basically followed the, the outlines of the Missouri Compromise. And all of those was some idea of keeping the Senate in, in Lincoln's reading of all this, of keeping the Senate equal for the present time, but giving no endorsement of slavery. And so then comes 1854, now we get to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And Kansas and Nebraska are important because they're going to build a railroad across that big territory, and there's going to be one or two states there. And then the great Stephen Douglas, little giant they called him, brilliant man, uh, good enough to come to go toe-to-toe for hours with Abraham Lincoln and come in a respectable second. Yeah. And, uh, and really something else, and very worth reading. In our Constitution Reader, there are long passages and one whole speech from Stephen Douglas, almost as much as there is of Lincoln. Uh, and so Douglas hits upon this idea, and uh, he's got a lot going on. He wants the country to grow very fast, and he sees he wants it to take Cuba and 
heck fire, Canada and South America to manifest destiny. And he thinks it can't grow and become the great thing it's going to become if there's going to be slavery agitation every time it grows. And so I, he takes this view. The Declaration of Independence does not mean the, the Negroes, the blacks. It doesn't include them. They are inferior, and each locality will decide for itself whether it will have slavery or not. We come back from break. We'll find out how Lincoln responded to the idea that popular sovereignty would decide whether or not a state would be free or slave. The Douglas contribution. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America. We have just left off with Stephen Douglas arguing that the country would advance and each new state would vote whether it would be slave or free. And Larry Arn, Lincoln does not like this idea. Nope. Um... Douglass's doctrine is popular sovereignty, and he says, I personally care not whether slavery is voted up or voted down. Although he says, you know, you can treat, each state can treat the blacks however it wants to, admitting that they're inferior. And uh, this is a powerful doctrine, and there's a chance for a while that people who would later, who, who were beginning to join the Republican Party, would join in this. Uh, we admit that the state's where it already is, we can't touch it, just carry that on. And, and Douglas would make to them, to audiences made up of people who thought that way and were against slavery, well, look what's going on anyway. Most slaves are coming in. I mean, most states, slavery's not growing right now. And, it's, and, uh, and so if you're right that freedom is the right way to go, that will win out. And we don't have to have a civil war and divide the country. So Lincoln's response to this, and it starts with the Peoria speech, which is the speech on the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which is one of his great speeches. And here I'll mention a book about it by my friend and probably yours, Lou Lehrman, L-E-H-R-M-A-N, about the Peoria speech. I don't know Lou, but go ahead. He's a really great guy, and his book is excellent. And he and Lincoln prepared this speech for, it's a long speech, and he prepared it for weeks and here's the case it makes. Um, he says, uh, first of all, it matters very much to the Union what happens with these territories because these territories uh, are meant to be for free labor, free white settlers, he says. And slavery is the thing that poor people run away from, not the thing that they thrive amidst. Huh. Uh, that's, that's an important argument. And I have to return to that in just a second. The second argument is the principle established by this establishes so very much. Because if it's true that, and, and see, the idea, uh, popular sovereignty turns out to be very difficult to figure out how to implement. Because at what because the, the, the pattern is a bunch of people move into a state, and under the Northwest Ordinance, when they get to be a certain number, then they can form a territorial government, and then they can develop their institutions some more and a petition Congress for a, for a constitution and to be members of the union, full equal members. That's how states come in. And so Lincoln says, at what point do they vote? Do the first 31 settlers uh, decide that the 32nd is going to be a slave? And then they decide for everyone who comes after them, just like the British did with the whole country. Huh. And then they're going to have to live. 
And if there's a right in the 31 to own the one, then that right, if extended, can go anywhere. And, and, uh, and, and he says, then we will have changed the nature of the union. And the people who come later, who will be much more numerous than the people who are establishing this now, are going to be saddled with this institution. Now, here's the place where we have to turn to uh, one of the many ugly parts of this debate. Because this is so hard, because there probably is a large majority of Americans who don't like slavery and are against it. And those people can't imagine living freely with people of a different race among them. And Lincoln, Lincoln says in one of his speeches, he says this, this near universal sentiment against the amalgamation of the races is the key to the strategy of Stephen Douglas, because he's playing on that. And, and if Lincoln had said, I'm for intermarriage, for example, I think they've got to have the vote right now. I think that they've got to live among us just like us. Lincoln, uh, as one of my teachers says, could have had his uh, uh, party campaign, his uh, party meetings in a telephone booth if right. he had them back then. So he can't say that, and he doesn't say that ever. Instead, he, I'm going to read you two things. Uh, he, he, he says in this Peoria speech, he says, What are we going to do? Free them all and keep them among us as underlings? Is it quite certain that this betters their condition? I think I would not hold one in slavery at any rate. Yet the point is not clear enough for me to denounce people upon. He says in another place in this speech, the people in the South are doing what we ourselves would do if we had it, had them among us, and we would have to try to figure out what to do with them. And we're going to talk as we go on about what Lincoln proposed about this. And then he says, uh, my own feelings, he says, shall we free them and make them politically and socially our equals? My own feelings will not admit of this. And if mine would, we may well know that the great mass of the, of the people will not. A universal feeling, whether well or ill-founded, cannot be safely disregarded. You see? Yeah, so interesting how he's phrasing that, because he's reserving his own conscience against the recognition of the universal opinion. He says famously, I am not now, nor have I ever been in favor of the social and political equality of the black man. And those are two tenses, and everybody knows there are three. Yep. And so, uh, you know, this is complicated, right? And, and people have to understand that Churchill says at one point, uh, I would stand to the last. Well, I'm going to read it to you. So in, uh, this is a, a kind of a more modern discovery. It was discovered in the 90s by my teacher, Harry Jaffa. He put it together because somebody wrote a biography of a man. He's in, it's in 1858, and he's one of the, the Charleston debate, and and Douglas is implying what he so often applies, implies, which is if Lincoln gets his way, these blacks are going to live among us just like we are. And and Lincoln, by the way, also uses the argument: if we have slavery, whites are going to have to compete with them. So now it comes to a point 
I'm going to read this to you. It's very important. You may want to wait until after we start okay. hour three, because this okay. is very important. Don't go anywhere, America. The, the, the day of Lincoln continues the last hours ahead, and we will cover Dred Scott, the address of the Cooper Union, and the first and second inaugural, as well as Lincoln's greatest speech at Gettysburg. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show.